Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Last time on Voices for Justice, we discussed the ongoing investigation into Alyssa's disappearance after my father's 2008 arrest. We went over my brother Rhett's second and third interviews, the search of my father's truck, and ended on my fear that the Thomas Heimer confession could be true. In this episode, we are diving deep into that confession and the investigation surrounding it. And we are also looking at some of the circumstances that eventually made me have a change of heart about supporting my father. Thomas Heimer is currently serving a life sentence in a Tennessee prison for the 2001 death of a woman named Sandra Lee Goodman. Sandra's body was found by a housekeeper under the bed of a beachfront motel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She had been strangled and stabbed in the neck. Heimer was later apprehended while driving her car. The last time we discussed Thomas Heimer was quite a few episodes ago, and that's because his confession just kind of sat with the FBI until Detective Summershoe and Anderson decided to dig deep into it again after my father's 2008 arrest. But as a quick refresher, Thomas Heimer confessed to killing Alyssa and 21 others, including J.C. Lee Dugard, who was later found alive. These confessions came after Heimer wrote a letter to Detective Curcio of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department proclaiming that he was a serial killer and that he was going to make Detective Curcio famous. As far as his confession to killing Alyssa goes, he stated that he met Alyssa in the parking lot of a Phoenix bar in 2001. Some reports state that it was May, the same month Alyssa went missing, and others say it was October, but Heimer claims that he took her to Georgia before killing her in a motel room and disposing of her body in an industrial area. The FBI interviewed Heimer and concluded that he was quite knowledgeable about specifics regarding Alyssa. And these specifics are not something I can ignore. Keep in mind that at the time Heimer provided investigators with these specific details, Alyssa's case was virtually unknown. There were no television shows, podcasts, or videos about Alyssa like there are now. From what we know, it appears that Heimer was essentially working off a very small newspaper clipping that contained an aged, progressed photo of Alyssa's face, and basic details such as her hair and eye color and weight and height. When he was interviewed by the FBI, Heimer was presented with a photo lineup of different girls, and he was able to identify Alyssa. No big deal, right? He could have gotten lucky, or really just studied that photo well before going into the interview. But he was also presented with a photo lineup of different pairs of shoes, to which he was able to correctly identify not just the style of shoe as being a skater-type style, but he was also able to identify the exact brand of shoes that my family and I told the police Alyssa could have been wearing on the day that she disappeared. And according to the report, he, quote, did identify them and did not hesitate to point them out, end quote. Heimer also confirmed that Alyssa had more than one piercing and no tattoos, all of which is correct. In addition to being able to correctly identify Alyssa's picture, shoes, and physical features, Heimer also offered a slew of different witnesses that he said would be able to confirm his story, even stating that he had given some of Alyssa's jewelry to multiple women after he killed her. And like I mentioned at the end of the last episode, This terrified me, and it made me wonder if this man really did kill Alyssa. Before reading these reports for myself, I knew almost nothing of this confession, other than the police deemed it to be false. But after everything that I've experienced with the police, I didn't want to just take them at their word and gloss over this topic. There are not many persons of interest in this case so far. So I feel an obligation to Alyssa to investigate each one to the best of my ability, despite whoever I may personally feel is responsible for her disappearance. But Detective Summershoe was told by the FBI that the confession was ultimately deemed false. The report reads, quote, 
Agent Jacob said that the fact that Heimer claimed to have picked up Alyssa in Phoenix when her father received a call from her in California troubled her and made her discount Heimer's account. She did say that Heimer had very detailed information and was certainly capable of such a crime given his prior history, end quote. So at this point, we have a man who is a convicted murderer who wrote a letter to a detective stating that he was going to make him famous because he was a serial killer and wanted to confess to all of his murders. We know that he didn't kill at least one of the people he confessed to killing because J.C. Lee Dugard is alive and well, thank goodness. But we also know that he actually did kill Sandra Lee Goodman. And he either knew or guessed some pretty specific information about Alyssa. However, this appears to have been disregarded based on the assumption that the call from California a week after Alyssa was gone was really made by her, to which we have no evidence of that being the case, other than my father's account and a phone record that does not tell us who actually made the call. So, Detectives Summershoe and Anderson decide to look further into this confession despite being told by the FBI that it was probably false. In February of 2009, Detective Anderson wrote Thomas Heimer a letter in prison. He asks Heimer to describe how he met Alyssa and describe her murder in detail. And Heimer responds. He reiterates that he did in fact kill Alyssa and states that he, quote, tried to give closure to this since 2006. And he goes on to explain, I want absolutely nothing from you or anyone else except complete and final closure. That way, I can let go. End quote. And from what I can gather, the only thing Heimer asked authorities for was a stamped envelope with their return address to continue the correspondence. He again tells the story that he met Alyssa in the parking lot of a bar when he found her in a van strung out on heroin. The police report describing this letter from Heimer reads, Heimer began his narrative by saying that he traveled to Arizona with a girl from Michigan. Quote, Once she was dead and buried, I headed to Phoenix. End quote. Heimer says only that he was kind of bar hopping, and that he wanted to visit bars that he had heard of in Avondale, Phoenix, and Scottsdale. No names of the bars or locations are provided. Heimer next mentions, quote, one night I was at a bar, and I figured out who one of the Coke dealers were, end quote. Heimer says that he was himself low on dope and cash, so he decided to, quote, roll the guy, end quote. Heimer fails to describe the individual as anything other than a, quote, wannabe biker, end quote, with a tan van. In relation to the robbery, Heimer's letter says only that he came up to the man from behind and, quote, dropped him, end quote. Heimer then removed cash and, quote, a little powder, end quote, from the person of the biker. Heimer then went to the biker's van looking for his stash. Heimer then relates, quote, Well, I found his stash all right, plus a girl who was seriously fucked up. This was Alyssa, end quote. Heimer says that Alyssa, quote, was so gone on heroin that she barely noticed me, end quote. Heimer continues saying that something about the situation made him decide to take Alyssa with him. He says he mixed a speedball of coke and meth and gave it to Alyssa to get her out of the heroin rut. Heimer mentions that, quote, it took a while, but it eventually worked, even though she had the shakes like a real bitch, end quote. No further detail as to the symptoms were provided. Heimer does not address what happened to the biker during the search of the van. Heimer does not speak of any issues with the open bar and any patrons coming in or out. Neither did Heimer address how the van was identified. Heimer said that he and Alyssa stayed at a Comfort Inn motel, but, quote, I can't swear to it, end quote. Heimer gave the estimate of this occurring late in the month around his mother's birthday, which is on the 30th of May. Heimer said the only thing Alyssa spoke of was how the biker, quote, kept sticking her with the needle every time she woke up. Heimer continued, she kept telling me how she needed me and we needed each other, end quote. Heimer then recalls that after a while, he decided to go back to Georgia. The next portion of this report speaks to Alyssa's sexual tendencies, according to Heimer, and a lot of it is omitted. But there is a quote that isn't redacted. Heimer said of Alyssa, quote, She proved herself in bed, and she proved I could trust her, end quote. 
He also says that he found himself the one that he wants to keep. Heimer said Alyssa would not talk about her past, other than saying she could not and would not go back. Heimer mentioned that Alyssa cried in her sleep and that he felt, quote, I should have cut the biker's throat. Whatever he did to her when he snatched her really left its mark on her, end quote. Heimer did not mention any of the travel through other states or where the couple ate or slept. He jumped right to Georgia, saying that he took Alyssa to his mother's home. While at the home, Heimer introduced Alyssa to his younger brother, Josh. Heimer noted that Josh seemed to like her. Heimer next visited a friend named Jonathan. Heimer said he went to get some coke, and while they were there, he and Alyssa had a little fun in a bedroom belonging to Jonathan's son. Heimer says that he and Alyssa left Jonathan's home and checked into a Days Inn motel. He mentions that his former girlfriend slash mother of his child has a father who works as a maintenance man at this location. The father is believed to have seen Heimer with Alyssa at the motel. The next portion of this report goes into the specifics of the murder of Alyssa. And just like the part including sexual activity, a lot of it is redacted. But I'll read for you the parts that are not. Heimer stated that the couple... He and Alyssa did lines of cocaine while at the motel. Heimer then asked for sex, but Alyssa complained that all of her cuts were sore. And then the next part is redacted for maybe four or five lines of the report. But it picks back up saying, I tightened the belt so it would choke her. She really started bucking around. About the time she collapsed, I came. Heimer stated that he placed Alyssa's lifeless body in the bathtub and bled her then cut her into pieces using a PVC saw. He stated that the body was cut into six different parts and then bagged. Heimer described driving the back roads to Forsyth, stopping at a dump road to add trash, oil, fish, leaves, etc. to the bags. Heimer says he went to the Forsyth Recycling Center on Juliet Road to dump the body in the compactor. Heimer mentions that the, quote, old man, end quote, who runs the center, helped him unload all the bags. Heimer states he then returned to the motel and got cleaned up. He says he called the mother of his child who came and stayed with him at the motel. Again, no times or dates are mentioned. Heimer mentions that Alyssa was wearing a ring and a necklace, both of which he took from her body and gave to female friends. No dates were provided. The women are mentioned by name and city, but no birth dates or addresses are provided. Heimer said he had come forward with his confession about the murders, providing Alyssa's name and the location approximately three or four months before he saw her name and picture in the missing person section of the USA Today paper. Heimer stated that Alyssa had, quote, a bad habit that I couldn't stand. She would never wear socks with her shoes unless I made her, end quote. Heimer also said Alyssa complained when he popped his knuckles. Heimer closed the letter by providing a brief physical description of Alyssa, saying, quote, Her hair was brown, but had been whacked off at her shoulders. She was average height with brown eyes. She told me she was 17. She was in decent shape, but had a little baby fat. The needle tracks on her arms were new and fresh, so they probably came from the biker, end quote. Heimer also mentioned that Alyssa was wearing white lace-up Keds shoes with no socks. The shoes had little blue squares on the back of them. All the other clothing she had on was thrown out. And that's the end of the report. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince, too, is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. 
I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. After reading this report, I saw some discrepancies. Of course, Alyssa wasn't known to do heroin. No one that I've spoken to has stated that she even tried it. But could she have been taken by some biker that shot her up with it? It's possible. The next thing that stood out to me was the knuckle popping and how it supposedly irritated her. I don't remember her being annoyed by knuckle popping. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that she's the one that taught me how to pop my knuckles and I can certainly confirm that she popped her own all the time. Last is the description of the shoes. Unlike what the FBI told the Phoenix Police Department, Heimer claims that Alyssa was wearing lace-up kids, and it was the only piece of clothing retained after throwing the rest out. I can say with 100% certainty that Alyssa did not own kids or anything that looked like kids. The only shoes Alyssa wore around 2001 were skater-style men's shoes or sandals. To follow up on this letter, Detective Anderson arranged to speak with Thomas Heimer on the phone. This tactic of repeating the same questions and asking for the same story more than once is common in law enforcement. I experienced this personally in my own interview with Detective Summershow and Anderson. They want to see if your story changes. So I'm going to read the report outlining this phone call with Heimer and let you be the judge as to whether or not his story changes in a detrimental way. The report about the phone call begins by introducing the letter that Detective Anderson had written to Thomas Heimer. It also explains that Thomas Heimer was given all of his Miranda rights, had to sign a card, and send it back to Detective Anderson before they spoke on the phone. The phone call begins with Thomas Heimer asking Detective Anderson what took so long. He then stated that he had made this confession back in 2006. Detective Anderson then asks Heimer to clarify how many murders he was confessing to. Heimer claims it was 12 or 13 murders in total in six different states across the country. They then go into the background about how Thomas Heimer was interviewed and by whom. The report reads, I also asked Heimer if he had been interviewed by Florida detectives and the FBI in relation to these confessions. Heimer said that he had been interviewed, and then added that he had last spoken to the FBI agents nearly 10 months earlier. Heimer would later explain that he had been transferred to another prison in southern Florida approximately 10 months ago, and had just returned to his current location. The FBI interviews had ended when he briefly left his current facility. I had no information as to where the federal investigation stood or when it would resume. Heimer understood that the manner in which he had offered his confession had complicated the law enforcement response. This was not a simple confession to one solitary crime. 
but rather a lengthy yet vague narrative involving numerous jurisdictions. Detective Anderson then asks Heimer to describe Alyssa and the first time that he met Alyssa. The report reads, Heimer began by describing traveling through Arizona and visiting what he described as a biker bar. Heimer said that he noticed a biker-type guy in the bar and ended up, quote, rolling him for dope, end quote. Heimer said he himself was coming down from cocaine and methamphetamine use and was experiencing DTs. Heimer was unable to name the bar or provide a location. He could not position the bar in any particular part of the city or even name one of the crossroads where it was situated. Heimer continued saying that the biker, whom he did not name, had a stash of drugs in the van parked in the parking lot outside of the bar. Heimer estimated that he took $3,500 to $4,000 in cash and, quote, two, three, or four baggies of coke and some meth, end quote. Heimer added that there was a considerable amount of heroin inside of the van along with needles. He then volunteered that he did not do heroin and he was not a dealer. The heroin was left in the van. Heimer described the biker guy as a white male in his late 30s to 40s, approximately 6 foot tall and between 230 and 240 pounds. He said that he had followed the biker out of the bar and had struck him from behind, knocking the man unconscious with a single punch. When questioned, Heimer recalled carrying a particular knife that had a hilt with finger holes that served as brass knuckles. The single punch struck the man in the base of the neck. Heimer volunteered that he was known to always carry four or five knives at all times. Heimer went on with his narration, describing how he moved the unconscious man to the subject's van and then used his keys to unlock the vehicle. Heimer estimated this attack occurred sometime after 10 or 12 at night. The biker was left lying next to the van for the duration of the event. Heimer next described the van, calling it old and worn out, an American-made vehicle but unknown make and model. The van was tan in color and had two sets of folding doors, one set of doors on the driver's side and one set on the rear of the van. The doors opened outward in both locations. Heimer was sure to say that the van did not have the type of doors that slide. He then described the interior of the van as smelling of beer and vomit. The van only had two front captain's chairs and no seats in the back. The van was filled with trash and clothing. Alyssa was inside the rear of the van, vomiting. Heimer said he used the biker's key to unlock the van and search for the dope. Heimer found the drugs, including the heroin, in a small pack hidden between the front seats. Heimer gave very good detail about finding the drugs. Heimer then noticed Alyssa in the rear of the van. Heimer described Alyssa as, quote, totally whacked, end quote. He said that he could see several fresh injection points, with a bruise up high on the bicep of her right arm. Heimer said the biker must have been, quote, tying her off, end quote, and injecting her with heroin. Heimer said taking Alyssa with him, quote, seemed like the right thing to do, end quote. Heimer then described how he mixed an eight-ball mixture of methamphetamine and cocaine and forced it down Alyssa's throat. The drug had the effect of waking Alyssa up, and again causing her to vomit. Heimer explained that the drug was necessary to wake Alyssa up and get her to his vehicle. I pressed Heimer for a physical description of Alyssa and her clothing. Heimer said Alyssa was filthy, having vomited on her clothing. He described the girl as wearing a white or tan blouse with short sleeves. Alyssa wore tight jeans and white keds without socks. Heimer added that he does not like women to go without socks, so he noticed the offense immediately. He continued by describing Alyssa as having shoulder-length brown hair with streaks that were blondish. He added that once cleaned up, the blonde hair was no longer visible. Alyssa was described as having a decent shape and a little bit of body fat. Heimer estimated that Alyssa was 5'6 or 5'7 and young. He commented that he had carried her to the car, 
providing the estimate weight at the time to be 120 pounds. Hymer mentioned that Alyssa wouldn't talk at first. He states that he and Alyssa left the unnamed bar and began driving around Phoenix. Hymer repeatedly mentions Phoenix, but again was unable to provide a street or landmark. Hymer said that he traveled out of town, back the way he came into the state. He mentioned that he was heading as if he were heading back toward Michigan, which is where he had come from most recently. Hymer made no mention of traveling to visit his uncle in Nevada. Hymer went on and volunteered that he may confuse things about Alyssa and about Phoenix, Arizona. He explained that this had only been his second time in Arizona, so he was not familiar with his surroundings. He also mentioned that he had traveled to Arizona and killed another young woman that he had met in Michigan. Hymer said he might describe things about the other woman and mistakenly attribute them to Alyssa. He estimated that he drove approximately 20 minutes before finding the interstate with a total drive time of one hour before finding a Comfort Inn motel on the way out of town. Hymer was specific about the motel name, noting that his mother worked for the company. He further defined out of town as a route headed towards Texas. Hymer said he checked into the motel, leaving Alyssa in the car. The couple would stay in the motel for a total of two nights. Hymer said they stayed overnight Friday and again on Saturday before leaving town on Sunday morning. Hymer used his Georgia state driver's license to register at the motel, but volunteered that he often traveled with a fake Florida license in the name of Thomas Albert Bach. Hymer explained that he obtained the fake identification while in Tennessee. I asked Hymer questions about his stay at the motel, such as what he did for food. Hymer described leaving Alyssa in the motel while he bought fast food. He had described the area around the motel as having other motels and restaurants nearby. Again, Hymer was unable to provide descriptions, names, or addresses. He did mention that on the first night he bought food at a chicken place, and on the second night, hamburgers. Hymer either could not or would not provide further detail. Hymer said that Alyssa remained quiet and would not speak about her past other than saying she, quote, could not go back now, end quote. Hymer assumed Alyssa was a runaway with an unhappy home life, or possibly embarrassed from what had happened with the biker guy. Hymer remained vague in describing Alyssa and minimized conversation between the two of them. Hymer said that Alyssa went through 48 hours of withdrawal and was as close to overdosing as you can get. He described Alyssa as having the shakes for 48 hours. Alyssa was constantly vomiting or dry heaving, causing Hymer to place a trash can next to the bed. Hymer said Alyssa was throwing up stomach liner and black liquid. He states that Alyssa didn't eat much during the motel stay. When pressed for a better physical description, Hymer mentioned bruises on Alyssa's wrist and again on the upper arm. He also mentioned two articles of jewelry one necklace, and one ring that was later given to female friends. Alyssa had no other property on her person. He was unsure if Alyssa had left clothing or identification in the van. Hymer mentioned that he bought clothing for Alyssa from Walmart, which included two shirts, two shorts, and a bag of socks. He could not recall the location of the Walmart or how close it was to the motel. Hymer stated that Alyssa's original clothing was thrown out because it was covered in vomit. Hymer noticed that Alyssa was not wearing a bra or panties. No bra was purchased at Walmart, but Hymer did buy panties, which he described as, quote, bloomers that covered the whole ass, end quote. On Saturday night, Hymer said Alyssa began talking a little bit. Hymer said Alyssa told him, quote, I don't want to go back, not after what happened, end quote. Hymer assumed Alyssa was from Phoenix, but she never assisted in directing him around the valley while driving, and never mentioned her home. I asked Hymer if Alyssa spoke of friends, family, work, or school. Hymer again could not remember details, but believed Alyssa, quote, wasn't in it, end quote, in reference to school. Hymer added that Alyssa, quote, cried all the time, even cried in her sleep, end quote. On Sunday morning, Hymer said he and Alyssa showered together and that he noticed there was an infection at the injection site. 
Heimer said he helped Alyssa clean her wounds. Alyssa had no visible scars, marks, or tattoos that Heimer could recall. Heimer again qualified his memory, saying that it was several years ago and difficult to recall through all the haze of his own drug use. I expressed some displeasure at the lack of details in the description of Alyssa. Heimer added that the motel room was kept dark and that he could not see her very well. Heimer was sure that he had stayed in the motel Friday night, Saturday night, and then left on Sunday morning. Heimer added that the couple was in Texas by midday Monday. Heimer specifically said that it was deep in Texas, mentioning Dallas, Orange County, on Monday. The phone call then begins discussing the sexual relations that Heimer had with Alyssa. And like the letters, a lot is redacted. But essentially, Heimer says that he did not pressure Alyssa into sex, stating, quote, I'm not a person who goes raping people. I could tell she had sex plenty of times, end quote. He said that after these sexual encounters, quote, I found the one I want to keep, end quote. Detective Anderson then hears the prison officials informing Heimer that he needs to end the phone call very soon and return to his cell. But Detective Anderson pushes on, and he asks Heimer to describe the murder of Alyssa. That portion of the report reads, Heimer was specific in the location for Alyssa's murder. Heimer gave the location as the Days Inn in Macon, Georgia. Heimer has a child with another woman. That woman's father is the maintenance man at the motel and was introduced to Alyssa by Heimer himself. Heimer gave the reason for the murder as an argument over sex. Heimer said that Alyssa was complaining that all of the cuts he had made on her had not healed and she was too sore for sex. And again, they go into more specifics about the sexual activity and a lot of it is omitted. But essentially, Heimer says that the room was too dark to give accurate descriptions of what Alyssa looked like. And the last part of this portion reads that he strangled Alyssa to death by placing his belt around her neck. Heimer was asked if Alyssa fought to stay alive. Heimer said that Alyssa, quote, bucked around, end quote, but was unable to get free. The next portion of the report goes into the disposal of Alyssa's body. And that portion reads, Heimer said that after Alyssa was dead, he drained the blood from her body into the bathtub. Heimer described cutting Alyssa's neck at the jugular vein on both sides. He also cut the inner portion of both thighs and just above the stomach. Heimer noted that you must be careful not to puncture the stomach, as the contents will stink. He estimated that it took five hours for Alyssa to completely bleed out. Heimer said he used a PVC saw which he kept in his truck to dismember Alyssa's body. The head was removed from the torso and all four limbs were severed. Heimer said the body was bagged in six pieces, with the bags coming from his truck as well. The vehicle was owned by Country Fed Meats, a corporation which allowed Heimer to work out of his vehicle on air conditioning repair jobs. Heimer was now being told to end the conversation and return to his cell. He again advised that the letter would have all of the detail I needed, and also that I could verify his story by speaking to his younger brother Joshua, his friend John, and the unnamed grandfather of his child. Heimer advised that the necklace removed from Alyssa was given to a woman a couple weeks after the murder. He estimated early June of 2001 as the time frame. The ring removed from Alyssa was only described as a gold band with a stone. The ring was given a few weeks after the necklace was given. I asked Heimer if he would be willing to take a polygraph to help authenticate his testimony. Heimer agreed to take the test, and admitted to having taken three polygraphs in the past, Heimer said that he passed two state polygraph tests in regards to stolen items and the murder which had placed him in prison. Passing the test meant that Heimer appeared believable. A third test was administered by the FBI and was failed. Heimer said that during the third test, he got excited reliving the details of the murder and that the excitement caused him to fail the test. This third test was conducted in reference to one of the other homicides to which Heimer had confessed after being sentenced to life without parole. I ended the conversation with Heimer, thanking him for his time and advising him that I would be in touch. And that's where the report ends. 
After going back and forth with Hymer on this confession over letters and this phone call, the Phoenix Police Department sent Detective Summershoe and a civilian polygrapher to speak with Thomas Hymer in person in Florida in April of 2009. Hymer ultimately failed the polygraph. After the test was completed, Summershoe entered the room to discuss the failed results. And it's concluded that Thomas Hymer had never seen an actual picture of Alyssa but only an age-progressed photo, which is essentially an illustrated photo that depicts what Alyssa might look like years after her disappearance. And after seeing Alyssa's real photo, he concluded that this was not the girl from Phoenix that he remembers killing. Hymer even apologizes for wasting their time. And in July of 2009, Detective Anderson interviewed some of Hymer's alleged witnesses. However, None of them were able to corroborate Hymer's story or recall even meeting Alyssa, and none of the witnesses who Hymer claimed met Alyssa were able to pick her out of a photo lineup either. So at this time, the confession was ultimately deemed false by the Phoenix Police Department, as it had been by the FBI, and no further action was taken. When the ABC 2020 special about Alyssa aired later that year, this is what was concluded. Detectives discover little, if any, information from Hymer can be corroborated. They decide it's time for a trip to that prison down in Florida. I went down and I, I spoke to him. We, we um, took a, one of our polygraphers, one of our most experienced polygraphers. Did you kill Alyssa? Are you the person who killed We polygraphed him and he uh, failed the polygraph. I sat down with him and I, I said, you know, I, I know this girl. You're gonna have to convince me that you know this girl because there's things that you'll be able to tell me. And he kind of got this look on his face like, oh, this, is, this isn't gonna work. And I know this girl pretty well when I'm at And I know that you weren't with this girl. If you said it's not her, I mean, hey, I figured work for you. You've been around her more than I have. That's when he started to change his story a little bit. He's like, well, I did pick up a girl in Phoenix and I, I did kill her, but maybe it wasn't Alyssa. If I had to choose that picture, I wouldn't have picked her up. No, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have picked her out. I wouldn't have said it with her. I don't find his confession credible. I don't think there's any validity to it. He's a very troubled man. We just don't believe he killed Alyssa. But after digging so deep into Alyssa's case, this conclusion left me wanting more information more clarification. I have so many questions. How did he know these specific details about Alyssa? Does he have detailed stories like this for all of the other confessions he made? How could anyone possibly keep so many confessions straight in their head? So a few months ago, I reached out to Thomas Heimer myself. My letter was simple. I introduced myself explained that I had read the documents pertaining to his confession and wanted to reach out to him myself and hear his side of it all. And he wrote back. That letter reads, Dear Sarah, I just received a letter from you today and wanted to answer you back right away. First of all, I need to ask you a couple of things, and they are as follows. 1. How do I know you are who you say you are? 2. Why wait 14 years to contact me? 3. Are you sure you want to open this can of worms? There are a lot of things that most people don't know, including you, I'm sure. 4. What is a podcast? Sorry, I've been locked up for a while. 5. How did you find me? Okay, sorry about all the questions but I know Alyssa went through a lot of things, and I wouldn't want to put her through more because of me. I would love to finally let someone know what all really happened. But who would listen to me after all that has happened and what I'm in prison for? I couldn't even get anyone to listen to me on my original charge of murder. But maybe I can at least give you and maybe your family some answers you've been seeking. So yes, Sarah Turney, I would be willing to talk to you about it. Just tell me or ask me what you want to know. As for talking on the phone, I would, but there is an issue. I could put your number on my phone list, but I do not have money on my account to make phone calls. So I'm sorry, 
but we will have to correspond by mail. I'll try to see what I can do, though. Maybe I can figure out a way to get some on there for a quick call. We will see. You said on or off the record. What do you mean by that, and what do you prefer? And the police reports you read about the whole situation? Well, I bet you didn't get much out of that, did you? Yeah, I do think we need to talk about it. Last question. What do you hope to gain from all of this? I don't want to let you down is why I'm asking. I do hope to shed some light on it, though. Anyway, I would like to hear back from you. If not, hey, it was nice to receive a letter, and I thank you for it. And I know a lot of people, probably yourself included, think the worst of me because I gave a false confession. But there was a reason behind me doing it, Sarah. Do you honestly believe I would just randomly pick Alyssa's disappearance to fuel a murder confession? Maybe that's why you decided to write me. Maybe you actually believe there could be more to it. And there is. I'll close for now. Feel free to write me back and ask anything. I'll answer you immediately. Until then, take care and I wish you all the very best. Sincerely, Tom. When I got this letter, I was intrigued, I was scared, I was nervous, and I was excited. But I didn't want to go into specifics over letters. I feel like it would give him a lot of time to think it out and ensure that he got his story straight before sending me the next letter. So I took him up on his offer to talk over the phone for an official interview for the podcast. But then, COVID-19 happened and our correspondence slowed down. At this point, I have three letters from him, all basically saying the same thing, that I don't know the whole story, that there is a reason he has this information, that the timing of the confession didn't happen by accident, and that he would love to tell me everything in an interview over the phone. But as it stands, I'm still waiting on that call. So unfortunately for now, I don't know what Heimer's current version of events is, or how he knew that information about Alyssa. If I ever get that call, I will create a one-off episode to revisit the topic. But for now, like so many other things in this case, it's still unknown. At this point in the timeline, we're in the year 2009, and I know none of this. I don't know about my brother's interviews, I don't know about the duplicate truck, and I don't know about Heimer's confession in detail. So at this time, I had taken up advocating for my father full-time. Like I mentioned previously, I acted as his legal secretary and even created a website for him, freemichaelturney.com, as well as a petition in an effort to get his sentence overturned. I was still living in his house, working full-time, and going to school full-time. Just as I had slept in Alyssa's bed after she was gone, I did the same thing when my father went to prison. I'd sleep in his bed and watch his favorite movies, and just cry, wondering why all of these terrible things had happened in my life. When he would call from prison, I tried to keep him up to date on his favorite TV shows and new movies, but quickly our conversations became less friendly and really just about what he needed. But I figured he just had to be so sad and lonely in prison and really did need all of that help. I didn't realize that most of what I was doing for him would have almost no impact on his case. And he was more or less just using me to file motions and write letters as an extension of himself. Eventually, I let go of his house. The mortgage was high, the housing market was down, and my boyfriend's parents offered for us to take over their mortgage payments as they planned to move out. And my father agreed. He encouraged me to live in the house as long as possible before the bank took it back. So I did. And eventually I walked away from that house that held so many terrible and so many wonderful memories. But not too long after moving into my boyfriend's parents' house, we got a knock on the door. Despite never being late with my payment to his parents, the man at the door told us that the house was being auctioned off and that we had to move out. Upset and determined to make a safety net for myself, I saved all the money I could 
and became a homeowner in 2011 at the age of 22. Quickly after, I found out that I would be graduating from college at the top of my class the following spring. I was so proud. And I wanted my father to be proud of me too. After finding out my graduation status, I waited excitedly for my father's next call from prison. I couldn't wait to tell him. And eventually, he called. And I gave him the good news. But he wasn't excited, and he wasn't proud. Instead, he told me that he had been seeing visions of my dead mother, and that she was still upset that I didn't graduate from high school. Although this particular moment isn't related to Alyssa's case, it made me question my father's love for his children, and especially his love for me. I couldn't understand how he could be so cruel. My entire life I looked after him. I thought about all the days of school I missed to make sure that he was okay, all the hours I spent typing his legal documents, and the thousands of dollars I sent him in prison. I had been taking care of my father my entire life. And when I shared the news of my proudest moment, about how I had overcome all of this and still created a life for myself, and what looked like to be such a bright future, he just didn't care. And this lack of empathy, this lack of love, made me question everything. What was I doing? Why was I helping him? Did he love any of us? Was that ABC 2020 special right about him? Could he be the monster from that show? It wasn't that exact day, but I remember turning to my boyfriend, that same boyfriend that moved in with me and my father so many years ago, and I asked him, Do you think my father could have killed Alyssa? And he said, Sarah, everyone thinks your father killed Alyssa. Next time on Voices for Justice. I couldn't keep what I thought about my father to myself. I had to ask him. So I planned out what I was going to say and waited for his next call from prison. In 2013, while clearing out some boxes that sat on my back porch untouched for years, I found a map of my father's that wasn't taken by the police. The map contained handwritten notes, and certain locations were circled. My boyfriend googled the longitude and latitude of these locations and found that they were in the middle of nowhere. At this point in the police reports, the title on each page changed from missing juvenile to missing person, likely homicide. So I get a ton of questions about Alyssa's case. So I thought it would be helpful if I began answering a few of these questions in each episode. So if you have a question about Alyssa's case, please submit an audio snippet of your question with your name and where you're from to sarah at voicesforjusticepodcast.com. And if your question gets chosen to be aired on the podcast, I'll send you a fun swag pack full of Justice for Alyssa and Voices for Justice goodies. I love interacting with you guys, so please send me your questions. That being said, Here's our first question. Hi, Sarah. Um, Jessica here in Phoenix, Arizona. So um, first off, I am so proud of you. I obviously have been a follower of Alyssa's story since it was on Crime Junkies and have you know, been rooting for you since day one of you starting this podcast. So I'm so excited to see all the traction that Alyssa's case has gotten in the last couple of years and how far you are taking this. Um, so on that note, with how much traction it is getting, have you gotten any word from Michael Turney or, um, you know, is he growing fearful at all? I, I feel like I've just kind of wondered that with 
how public you are about this story and about how much you've come out with um, everything that's happened in the case. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you and looking forward to justice for Alyssa. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for your question. Um, So the last time I spoke with my father is that call you hear in the very first episode of this podcast. We do not keep in touch, um, so I have no idea if he's aware of the coverage or what he thinks about it. Hey, Sarah, this is Taylor from the Let's One About Murder podcast. You're a total badass, and I've been a huge fan of you and what you're doing for your sister for years. Here's my question. You were such a supporter of your father for a long time. What was the thing or the tipping point where you decided that he had something to do with Alyssa's disappearance? Hey, Taylor. Thank you for your question. I love getting the love from other podcasts. Um... So, yeah, I touched on it at the end of this episode a little bit, um, but it it would be great to expand on it. It was not really everything all at once. It was really a culmination of so many things happening, of me realizing that my father just really didn't care about me or any of his kids and kind of looking at him in a different light. And I think at that point, then I was able to at least entertain the idea And you'll see it more in the next episode, but as I approach him with my suspicions, his answers do not satisfy me, and in my mind, he looks more and more suspicious. But yeah, I think it was a tipping point of just really being able to listen to the fact that he could be an actual suspect and just being more open-minded about it, and then it kind of grew from there. Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.